Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to How To Money, a financial education podcast for young Australians aimed at opening up the conversation around money. In each episode, your host, Kate Campbell, brings in a variety of guests to explore everything from buying shares to starting your own business, all with the aim of kickstarting your personal finance journey. Just a quick reminder that everything we cover in this podcast is for financial education purposes only, and we are not giving you any advice. If you do want advice, please seek the help of a qualified and competent professional and do some research. Remember, it's your money, so take control. Hi, Danny. Thank you so much for joining me on the How To Money podcast today. Thank you for having me, Kate. This is very exciting. Yeah, and you're in lockdown at the moment, so it's a a little sort of taste of the outside world for you. (laughs) Yes, it's a bit surreal. Here we are. What are we, July 2021? And it's back feeling like when the first book was launched. In May 2020, I have this terrible knack that every time I launch a book, we seem to be in lockdown. (laughs) Yeah, I think I was definitely in lockdown when we spoke last year for the podcast and about Sharefelicity, the first book. So uh, it's really exciting that you've got the second book coming out, but I guess quite sad at the same time that you can't do all of the fun stuff that comes with a book launch. Yeah, well, I'm hoping that we'll be out in a couple of weeks so I can start visiting some bookstores and, you know, signing a few books. But it is what it is, isn't it? We are stuck with this this virus and the Delta strain is very bad. And because generally across, across the globe, not enough people have been vaccinated. So it's kind of interesting because it is going to play out, I think, again, and is already playing out in the financial markets, but we can get to that down the track. <laughs> yeah, awesome. So if someone hasn't listened to our conversation last year, and I'll include it in the show notes, which I'd encourage you to listen to first. But Danny, what should people know about you and Shareplicity and your book and your work before we get started? Oh, just very briefly, I've been involved in share investing either professionally or personally for far too long now, Kate, over three decades. (laughs) We don't like to admit that. Uh, That's Um, good to have some experience. (laughs) Yes, as long as one still retains an open mind and is ready to learn. And that's the key thing about investing. And just over a couple of years ago, I wanted to write a book anyway, Shareplicity, A Simple Approach to Share Investing was born. It did very, very well. It was really exciting. It hit the bestseller lists for uh, business books and I've had lots of positive feedback. So that was really a starting point for people to learn more about share investing and how to understand companies. And then I wanted to do a second book, which is now Shareplicity 2, a guide to investing in US stock markets, because I just think 
everybody should have an exposure to US stocks because they are the largest markets in the world. They're the most liquid. They have some of the most amazing companies in the world. And clearly, they are dominated by technology and innovation. And I think what the last year has shown the world is that we are going to continue to move down that direction of innovation, technology, leading the way that we work, rest and play, literally. Mm, yeah, it's, it was great to read it because last year when your first book came out, I thought it was such a unique fit in the Australian market because there hadn't really been many books about share investing itself because most of the personal finance books come out, touch on a bit of everything, like what, what what's a credit card, what's a... <laughs> Uh, a mortgage, like you, you just get like a few pages on every single aspect of personal finances and nothing really sort of no deep dive on anything. And then you're left having to go find that all yourself. So I thought your book was quite unique in the fact that it actually talked about investing in Australian shares, not just ETS, which is often the flavor. This seems to be the flavor at the moment. Yeah. Oh, well, that's great. Thank you. Well, that was the whole purpose of the exercise is to try and simplify the complexity that the jargon and the narrative that comes out of investing so that people in the street or even existing investors had a better idea of trying to understand what a share is and how that relates to the underlying company. And as you know, Kate, a share is a price but then there is a company behind it and the two do not always correlate. No, no, but uh, we might get into that throughout the episode. But I wanted to start with, what are, since we last spoke nearly 12 months ago, what are some of the biggest changes you've seen in the investment landscape? Right, that's a really good question. And you have a confluence of factors that occurred with the pandemic and the health response, the lockdowns. And you have seen an emergence of what Charles Schwab, I've just written a piece that's on FN Arena and also will be available on my website. And you've seen it in both Australia and in the US. And there has been an emergence of what's called generation investor. That's what Charles Schwab calls them. And they're all new investors to the market. And they estimate that it's up to 15% of all retail investors are now new. The percentage is about 51% that sits in the millennials, but it also transcends into the Gen Xs and the Gen Ys and the Gen Zs. And these players have been incredibly dominant. It was actually the retail investors that started buying in the March 2020 pullback in share markets, and they have continued to dominate. And, of course, there's lots of media coverage about the Reddit crowd, the Robin Hood crowd, the bean stocks, the ganging up against the likes of the hedge funds. But I think in both Australia and the US, there were people were in a position where they were receiving some funds from government. They couldn't go to work. They wanted to make money and they saw opportunities in the share market. And I think that trend has actually continued in the last 12 months. And it'll be interesting to see because with a whole new generation of investors, they really haven't seen a bad bear market yet. So that, of course, will, will test the resolve of some of them. But uh, I think it's very exciting because coinciding with that, you've seen the democratisation of investing through technology. And this is really, really important that everybody now can be a part of this because you have investing apps that make it much easier. You have lower costs. You have lower 
site savings amounts that you can put into shares. You can now buy a variety of different ETFs or fractions of shares. So it's not the case that everybody has to be really rich and have a private stockbroker to invest in shares. It literally is anybody that has some money that wants to make a little bit more money because you're getting nothing in your bank deposit is now in a position where they can look to invest in the share market. So the byproduct of technological innovation and this crazy, crazy pandemic has actually been a boon for investors and also for the stock market, as well as the fact that central banks have provided historically high levels of liquidity into the financial systems. Mm, It's certainly not your grandparents' market anymore, is it? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I don't know. I I spoke to a lovely chap last year who said um, he was in WA and for the Australian Investors Association, which typically has an older demographic, and he said, I was buying there in March. I was buying in March. And I said, oh, good on you. But they were probably buying the traditional cyclical stocks, so the blue chips in Australia. And, of course, people have done very well. I mean, I think Westpac got down to $14 and I'm thinking, oh, I don't really want to own the banks, but I really should buy that. That's just so cheap. <laughs> yeah, it's been a bit of a wild ride. And I think it's it's great that young people have had the time and opportunity to have a go and have a play wide. There's been a bit of spare time, maybe a bit of spare cash, because I think so often young people don't think about investing, maybe until they get to their 30s and major life events start happening. So I mean, I can only see it as a good thing that people getting exposure, making mistakes with smaller amount of money earlier on in their career. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I started, I, I think I bought my first share, Sarich, which we discussed, I think, in the last podcast. And I was so excited. I made 25% on my little amount that I put in there and I sold it. And at that time, 25% was quite a lot. Uh, clearly, the returns have changed since then due to <laughs> these ultra low interest rates. But I'm very much a believer that it is important that the next generation is able to have a go. My generation, I'm the back end of the baby boomers, literally the the last year, which really disappoints (laughs) me because I do not consider myself a boomer at all. But they've had an amazing run in terms of asset prices, be it in the stock markets, be it in property. And it's time now for a next generation and the other generations to have a slice of the pie. And I think this has been afforded to them in the last 12 months. And because it is now a younger generation's world, that generation has a much better understanding of the technology and innovation that is being offered in the stock markets. And if we wanted to talk a little bit more about US stocks, which is kind of the point of today's episode, um, I know so many investors, we just focus a lot on the Australian market and we're reading Australian news and we're reading about all these companies that maybe we can see or our friends and family work at. And we often forget that there's a huge market out there, which is not the Australian market. And like people in the US don't really care one bit about what's happening to Australian companies. <laughs> Why do you think we get so just like focused on our own home market and we forget about the US market? Yeah, there's a very, um, just on that point that the US doesn't look at us. There's a very funny interview that I did with Ross Gerber from Gerber Kawasaki because he is a wealth manager in the US and runs about $2 billion out of Los Angeles. And he very kindly reviewed the book. And I interviewed him as part of this really small book launch that we had. And he's such a nice guy. He's a real dude. Check out the video because I now have (laughs) Shareplicity Talks on YouTube. Great. I'll put that in the show notes. And 
he's an absolute hoot. He's been investing for years. He basically said he loves Australia. He came out to Australia when he was younger, fell in love with an Australian girl. He was going to settle here. And then he discovered that there were five stocks on the Australian share market. And he said, oh, I can't do this. And he said, they're still the same five stocks. Of course, he's being a bit (laughs) facetious. There's more than five. But the point of the exercise is, is that with the US, there is the enormity of the NASDAQ and the S&P the two stock masks. I mean, they are just so huge and there is so much choice and it's wonderful, but it's almost like, as I say to my son all the time, he goes, oh, have you heard about this stock, mum? And I go, oh, yes, yes, yes. And we're like kids in a candy shop saying, oh, how are we going to fit another one in the portfolio? Oh, that's right. We can't. <laughs> but I think Australians uh, historically have invested at home, A, because you did not have the opportunity to invest overseas. It was incredibly expensive. It was very hard. We didn't have the online trading platforms that allowed that for that to happen. And also because the Australian market typically through all the resource booms and the property booms did incredibly well. So why did Australians thought, well, why would I bother to invest overseas? And probably one of the most important factors is the distortion that's created through franking credits and the dividend payouts. And Australian companies have a very high global payout ratio. And this is one of the things that I think is not good for Australian companies, generally speaking, because they should be investing for the future, not always paying out these very high dividends, which obviously have the tax credit. And unfortunately, it is what it is, the system, but uh, people have now uh, structured all their savings around these franking credits and it's unfair. You can't say you take them away from them, but equally so, it's not necessarily, I think, a healthy situation. In the US, they have lower payout ratios. There's been a lot of criticism around the share buybacks there, but they these big well, companies in the US, they love investing in technology, innovation. I suppose it's a culture that has developed over there where people are encouraged to try and fail and try and fail and eventually you will not fail and you will succeed. And it's a very different social culture that they have there compared to Australia, whereas we fail once and sort of want to crawl up into a hole and disappear. Yeah, it's definitely a different market. Some of those huge like Netflix over there, they tend to keep putting more and more money into production and development and they don't really have to focus too much on whether it's profitable at the end of the day. Yeah, well, that's an interesting case in point, Kate, and it's good that you mentioned it because Netflix has moved to profitability now and it's really important that they start to – I discuss quite a lot in the books how – Uh, particularly in the software as a service market. It's very easy to set up now your own software business and you expand by hiring more people, more coders, and pile a lot of money in in the investment, but you're not making any money out of it. And companies cannot go on like that indefinitely. All of these companies have to move from loss-making to making cash flow-positive earnings generation. It's just not viable. And that's kind of what you've seen, the bubble-like features in some companies over in the US, is that they're a hot stock on a hot theme and a hot narrative, and they run really hard. And then everybody goes, oh, but if interest rates go up, they don't make any money. They're going to be absolutely crushed. But anyway, we'll get to more of those things. (laughs) Yeah, awesome. So if I'm 
I'm imagining many of my listeners have invested in some way in the Australia market or they've got some exposure for their super fund. But if you haven't thought about investing in the US market before, what are some of the key differences that you should know about in terms of just how to do it and the companies and what to think about? Okay, so the first thing to recognise is that to invest in the US stock markets, you can do it from Australia. You can buy the S&P 500. They have a an iShares IBV here, which you can actually buy that ETF and it'll give you exposure to that. Mm. That's the first thing. You don't actually have to set up an account that allows you to trade in the US. But as you know, we now have Stake and Superhero. I got the name wrong the other day. That oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> there are so many of these new, new mm. platforms, it's hard to keep up. But they will allow you to buy shares in the US market and fractions of shares because obviously with Amazon that um, I think we're up to 3,700 US dollars, you know, that's hard for the most part, for most people to, to look at. I think when you buy the US, you have two ways to look at it. You're either buying it for why Warren Buffett has bought it over the years, which is to the growth in the GDP in the country. So Warren Buffett and Berkshire are very much like the economy has consistently grown at 2 to 4%, you know, since the 1950s. I'm slightly picking those numbers out of the air. But the point is, is that you you are buying GDP growth, okay? That's what he does. He likes to buy good quality but great value stocks that give you exposure to GDP growth. That's one side of the American equation. You're buying the big country. The second side of the equation is you say, "Uh uh-uh, I want to go the other direction. I want to buy the largest tech giants in the world, give me global exposure, think FANG, or I want to buy some of the leading technology companies that are changing the world. And I think the market can be kind of split, like there's quality stocks that span across from technology into the cyclicals, into the finance sector. But you need to understand, are you buying it because you want to buy GDP growth in America versus Australia? Or are you saying, hey, I would like to invest in those companies that are going to change my future? Yeah. And there's so many companies when you start looking at the US market that are actually changing the world. And even the products that you're using yourself, like so many of the products, mostly the digital products that I'm using on my phone, they're not companies in Australia, they're companies in the US and all of those streaming services. And I think sometimes we forget that they're actually companies that we can invest in. And if we're willing to pay for them anyway, should we be considering at least investing in them? Well, that's what I was, I was just writing some notes down when you said, how do you pick? Well, it's pretty simple. It's like, I, I, there was an old expression the guy that said, I like the company so much I bought it when he bought Gillette. Well, it's a little bit the same. It's like for the younger generation, I said, I haven't bought Snap and I haven't bought Twitter, but I use Twitter constantly. It's one of the main platforms for finance. And the people to understand, if you understand the service that is being provided by one of these companies and you really like it, well, there's nothing wrong than taking the next extension to doing a bit of research on them and saying, hey, I really like that. Like, I love Teslas. I can't afford to buy a Tesla at the moment because (laughs) I don't have a garage with a charger and there's no charging stations around Sydney because anyway, we won't go there. But (laughs) for me, it's much easier to say I can buy the stock. But equally, I 
bought Amazon back in 2016 and I, you know, have held Apple for a long time and it took me a while to be an Apple convertee or devotee. But now I think more and more of us have gone into that ecosystem. And I was speaking to a very intelligent, successful younger fund manager in his 30s and he said everybody should just own the big fang stocks and you know there's a, a, a ticker code for Invesco the Nasdaq 100 which is QQQ I'm not sure what it is in Australia but I'm sure you can get exposure through another ETF and I've probably listed it in my book I just can't recall it at the moment but arguably these big tech stocks I think still are going to have excellent growth pathways into the future. But as you say, there's a whole lot underneath, whether it's the Zooms, whether it's the Snap, whether it's the Twitter, whether it's the Square. Square's a great company if anyone's used, you know, the the Square pads that you pay with and now they're just getting into lending and, you know, they're at the, the front end of fintech innovation. So, I mean, there's there's so many names. Yeah, I, once I start looking at US companies, I just find more and more that really fascinate me and ones that I'm interested in investing in. So it's actually hard to draw the line because you only have so much to invest on a, a monthly basis. So you have to stop somewhere. You have to pick your best ideas. But I find it really difficult to narrow that down where I think in Australia, it's much easier to pick pick a few, whereas in the US, there's just so many you want to pick. Yeah, well, I guess that's when you can probably use an ETF if you understand the stocks that are in the ETF, whether it's a thematic like clean energy or lithium or electric vehicles or, I mean, there's so many. That's often a, you know, let's say you like the whole cannabis sector. I mean, I would never try and pick a cannabis stock per se, but if you wanted to buy there, I'd say, you know, buy an an ETF alternatively. You can look at some of the active ETFs in the US and obviously Kathy Wood is the queen of innovation and change and the ARK ETFs. And I have a lot of time for Kathy. I think she's incredibly experienced and she does a lot of research. And particularly when you're younger, you have, I suppose, you're still saving, you've still got money coming in and you can afford to move into stocks that have much greater growth potential but also have a slightly higher risk profile. I really like reading some of Kathy's team's research because they have so many different diverse analysts from different backgrounds, which sometimes I look at fund managers and their teams here and they're all just commerce from a similar university <laughs> and a very similar career path. And I kind of want what different diverse viewpoints can they bring to the table? I don't know. That's probably just mine. But. No, no, it's, you're, you're absolutely right. And it's very, very hard. I was chatting on another podcast. I was chatting to this great guy, Tim Buckley, who used to run Citigroup here uh, on the research side. And um, he's super smart. Anyway, he now works for IEFA, which is an energy and finance NGO, which specializes in what's happening in those two markets. And he was talking about the transition, obviously, the race to decarbonize. It's harder to see here in Australia because of politics, but it's very pronounced overseas. And he was saying, you can't expect the same board at ExxonMobil to transition when they're still stuck in another paradigm, the same with Woodside. And I think that's the point that you just touched on, but in a different way. Kathy Wood and her analysts have a different way of looking at the world. 
And I think it's very hard when we all have pre-prescribed views of how the world is, how it's going. I remember thinking, oh, my God, I'm going to use my Apple Pay. Oh, oh. (laughs) But now it's like, okay, I use my Apple Pay. I do this, da-da-da-da-da. And you get over the the fear hump that your whole life is on this frigging smartphone. (laughs) You go, don't lose it. But you get over that fear. And I think the key to investing, whatever age you are, is having an open mind, receptive to learning, doing your reading, I think we chatted about in the last podcast. And if you don't understand the technology, which can often happen if you're not using the products or the software or whatever, that's when I always say if you get into a space like genomics, which I don't understand and will never understand, I just don't have the capacity to appreciate what those companies are really doing, then you can again go down the ETF space. Yeah, awesome. So if if someone has got a US brokerage account or using one of these micro-investing apps that we have on the Australian market and they've done some background reading, they kind of understand how the whole process works, they've found one company that they think is going to change the world, what are some of the steps, it's like some of the high-level things that they should look at before they go and put their money into that company? Right. In terms of, well, I guess at the end of the day, you want a company that is making money or has the potential to make money. It's really important and put that in the context of where we are in the interest rate cycle. That's super, super important. And at the end of the day, it can be the most amazing narrative story stock like Virgin Galactic, but you have to question whether or not they're ever going to be able to make money out of that. So, It's really important to differentiate between the story and the narrative that it inspires the imagination. You get all excited and go, I love that story. And then you kind of go back to the fundamentals and you go, oh, my gosh, like they're investing this much, they've got all this debt, they're not producing enough cash flow, the founding shareholders have been selling down their stock, the CEO's running amok, oh, dear, I shouldn't go there. So I think you always have to have this check between you love the technology, you love the story, but the reality is that technology, that story has to be that good that it translates into revenue growth and then into earnings growth down the road. And that's one of the biggest things for a company like Tesla because I think they're a great example of this, is that they are starting to be positive in earnings and having a very high return on their funds invested. Now, obviously, they've got a long way to go, but the trend is in the right direction. So it's really important on CNBC. I'm pretty sure it's not behind the paywall. You can Google, Google, you can search on CNBC, any stock that you want, right? And you can probably do it on Yahoo as well. I just don't use Yahoo or whatever. I'll Google. And you can just have a look at the fundamentals in terms of how much debt they have, how fast their revenue is growing, how fast their margins are growing, are they going in the right direction? And you've got to then cross that, check that against the narrative of the story of the company. And one of the biggest things is that I think you want to invest in companies that have, that the consumer loves, that really, really love. And so that creates a loyalty, a brand, a moat. And we all know how sticky we are. Once we go and we buy a brand or a service, it often takes a long time for us to go, I'm going to change. 
that's the thing. It's it's really important that you get that consistent thing of the consumer coming back to use that product or that service. Yeah, even just thinking about as an Apple user, you've suddenly got your iTunes library that you've built up over so many years and you've got things you've brought on iBooks, you've got all of your stuff stored in iCloud that you maybe you pay a subscription for as well. You might have Apple TV. And so suddenly the thought of moving away from Apple and having all Apple devices is a like it would take a lot to make me leave Apple now after suddenly I've got sort of stuff everywhere. Yeah, you've hit the hit the nail on the head. It's called um, you're in the ecosystem, the Apple ecosystem. They call it often the walled garden. That's another bit of the the expression that they have. So I remember when I someone wanted to do a podcast on Microsoft Teams. Oh, it was such pain because you have to sign up. Yeah, I had to go into the Microsoft walled garden, but I didn't want to go there. <laughs> and that was why Zoom's done so well because they don't have that hurdle. But you're absolutely right, Kate. You you hit the nail on the head. All of us, most of us are probably in that Apple ecosystem. And like, that's, you know, why they are the largest company in the world, why they continue to grow, why they are probably the subject of antitrust, potentially legislation, and why they are sitting on, I'm going to, I think it's around 34, 36 billion in cash. And I can't remember whether that was just for one quarter. I mean, and they had the most insane earnings results in the last quarter of last year. I actually wrote a blog post about don't forget big tech and it was in May and I said to people like, you know, you can still buy these stocks and they've actually done really well since then. Yeah, so if if investors are looking for innovative companies and maybe trends to think about, where should they go to sort of start looking and exploring these ideas, especially in the US market? Apart from looking, reading in my book where I explain all yes. the, <laughs> the mega secular. I know you have a lot of different ideas in your book. Uh, the main thing I think is depending on what demographic you are, but again, you've just got to look at what you're using. And if, like, you know, I guess if you're a parent and you have a kid that's playing Roblox, well, have a look at, you know, that game that they are playing and try and understand it. For me, it's a little bit bridge too far, but augmented virtual reality, this whole gaming sector is absolutely huge. The best way is probably if you're comfortable going onto Twitter, you can pick up a lot of information on Twitter, but I always say to people, tread carefully in the beginning, try and follow people that have a good idea of what they're doing and are not always just pumping and dumping stocks. But there are lots of expert investors out of the US that are constantly giving ideas. If you see those ideas, then you cross-check and go and do some reading and some research. But I guess with the internet, it really is all at the tip of one's fingers at the moment. As I say, you could sit in your living room with the the cat at your, you know, the dog at your feet or the cat on your lap, <laughs> and you can discover all these companies purely by even going onto a website like CNBC, which doesn't have a paywall. If you do choose the paywall, which I do, just gives you a bit more information. But there is a lot out there once you start looking. Yeah, and I think sometimes people don't realise just so much information is available for free and the free stuff's getting pretty good. Like companies know they have to give pretty high quality free investment information before you're willing to pay for anything nowadays. So a good place to start. There are some of the, the, I talk about the whole ecosystem that's been created through Tesla, a lot of guys in their 30s 
have actually given up their day jobs and are now full-time Tesla commentators, analysts, podcasters. Tesla Daily is one. There's another one called Galley from Hyperchange, who's an absolute hoot. And these guys know this company better than most analysts in, in the street. And I think that you can find not only from the companies which record all their quarterly earnings announcements and information where you have a Q&A session, so you can actually go onto their websites into the investor section and listen to all of those, but then you've got all these other amazing personalities that are actually covering these companies. And it is a case of following a few people on Twitter, so I have found these people myself. And you can often get an idea of some of them are retired Wall Street bankers, some of them are retired analysts, and the quality of the work is is absolutely exceptional. And this is what I call, again, the democratisation of information that has come about through the social media platforms and the internet. Yeah, and it's not all locked behind a very expensive Bloomberg terminal anymore. Anyone can access this. Absolutely, and that's what's so important. And these people are very passionate and, of course, you have to be careful that, you know, they're all pushing their own stocks and you have to understand if they're growth investors, if they're momentum investors and how much they look at charts. But at the end of the day, it does give you ideas and then you can go away and say, oh, I'm going to have a look at this one. But when we talk about the the so much choice, I guess it does force one to really make the effort to get to know the company that you're investing in so that you don't just literally gorge out on too many stocks, which is very easy to do. And that's one of the key principles of investing You have to know yourself and your own risk tolerance, but you also have to know the company that you're investing in because if there is a sell-off in the stock, you have to understand that you might know the reasons why the company's, the share price is being sold down, but you will understand that you have faith in the company that they're going to be able to grow their earnings and that's why you hold it. Mm, Absolutely. And you touched on before sometimes, especially in this market with so much money running around, there can be a bit of a disconnect between the narrative that the company's spinning and in the media and what's actually happening at the fundamental level with the company actually making a great product and having profits. What are some of those signs that the company that you're buying might have a great story on the outside, but underneath it might just be a really poor quality company. It might be a bit of a, there might be a scam going on. It might be fraudulent. Like what, what are some of those red flags? I guess the red flags are, you saw it last year with a lot of the SPACs, with people piling into those. I own two SPACs or ex-SPACs, they're now companies. So I actually went online and researched them. One is STEM, which is uh, creating a smart software for smart energy systems in the renewable energy sector. And the other one is SoFi, which is a fintech that is being run by a guy who used to be at PayPal. So Again, when you get this wall of money, this wall of liquidity coming into the stock market, I was the beneficiary last year of unknowingly at the beginning a lot of Kathy Wood stocks that she was buying. So, for example, people were buying into ARC Innovation and I held stocks like CrowdStrike and Tesla and Zoom and all these companies that Kathy was then buying because she had money coming into her ETFs. So 
you have to sometimes stack back and say, yeah, the company's growing at 40% revenue growth, but the share price has just doubled. So that would suggest that you've had a massive expansion in the valuation of the company, should I continue to hold on to it. And again, if, if you're looking at the classic cases of, so company share prices will go up because either the earnings are growing, it's on a momentum or a fad trade, or the valuation of the company is getting higher. And the reason why it gets higher is either there's a bubble in the stock market or it's going to trade at a higher premium because let's say you're moving like Apple from a hardware company to more a software company or software services, that software as a service. So you subscribe to your iTunes and your Apple TV and that ecosystem we've talked about. So that's basically given Apple more of a premium because it's not just the the hardware of the phones where you've seen basically a lot of deflation in pricing of those products, even though Apple still charges a premium. But when you're looking at companies, as I said before, the classic case is you can always look where the CEO was beforehand whether or not you're seeing a lot of selling from the directors, whether it's recently come to the market as an IPO, be very careful with new public offerings because companies like uh, in Australia we had Newix, which has been an unmitigated disaster, the most hype, new, incredible software company, well, last seen down 80%, being investigated by ASIC, okay? So a lot of people lost a lot of money there. So I think... Investors need to be really careful with these new IPOs because there's no runs on the board and sometimes it takes a while for all the skeletons to come out of the closet. And Newix is a classic case in point. I mean, for example, Robinhood's coming to the market in America. I wouldn't touch that stock. I don't, I don't ethically agree with what they're doing and their model doesn't work for me personally. And another example was Coinbase. My, my son said, oh, mum, are you going to buy some coin on the first day of listing? listing, which for anyone who doesn't know, basically trades cryptocurrencies. And I said, no, I think I'll pass on this one, darling. And there's another case in point that you get all this enthusiasm and it pumps the stock up and then everybody goes, oh, look, Elon tweeted about Bitcoin. Oh, dear, Bitcoin's going down and they all still sell coin. So... You have to differentiate if there's a lot of hype and buzz and if it's a new listing, if it's a SPAC, a special access vehicle, which is a cash box that then buys another company. You have to be really sure that company that they have bought is actually making earnings. And just go back to your fundamentals. Does the CEO have a track record? Do the earnings and the margins look good? Are they going in the right direction? And hopefully the company is not too overgeared. But if you're going into the software spaces and things like that, I think you really need to understand what the software does before you kind of just dive in there. And that's where I think some of the younger generation that are using all these new softwares have a much better idea. Mm, Because they've probably actually really experienced that ecosystem, whether an analyst maybe in their 40s or 50s probably hasn't had a good play with the software. Absolutely. I've started using um, MailerLite because I'm setting up now a proper fun newsletter for for Shareplicity and it's really good fun. And I'm like going, oh, wow, this is really, really good. And that's the thing. You have to use DocuSign. You have to understand what's the other company that's coming to the markets it's a payments one I've just forgotten out of Ireland 
it's like a PayPal, but it's better if you have experienced the product or the service before you dive in. If not, there is a great lady called Beth Kindig, who I write about in the book. She came out of the private equity markets, venture capital markets, and she's a tech specialist. And she has uh, a newsletter and her website, and she does podcasts with The Motley Fool over in the States. And Beth is fantastic. So you can actually glean a lot about her analysis of companies, and she does deep dives into a lot of them that then are published on Barron which is at the moment, I don't think that's behind a paywall. So if people do want to learn more about tech, I highly recommend looking up Beth Kindig. Yeah, I've listened to it. And on that Motley Fool, the US podcast is really good. Their tech focus one, I think it is. So yeah, they've got, yeah, really deep dives and, and it's free. So you can you can listen to lots of different sources and kind of take bits and pieces from all of them. And one of the last things I wanted to talk about is one of the big trends in the last 12 months has been that rise in ESG factors, uh, environmental, social and governance when investors are looking at companies and there's more and more investors wanting to sort of look through that lens or look for ethical ETFs and things. How are you seeing this having an impact on maybe investors and the US market? And do you think this is moving things in a positive direction? Do you think it's changing anything? Absolutely. Um, I think ESG is well and truly here here to stay. I quoted um, Larry Fink from BlackRock, who obviously is one of the largest ETF companies in the world. And as Tim Buckley, when I interviewed him, he said, uh, Larry Fink has drunk the Kool-Aid. So he said, there is no company whose business model won't be profoundly affected by the transition to a net zero economy. So although BlackRock has been they're the second largest ETF provider after Vanguard. They are now putting in place this massive screening process called Aladdin to screen every company they invest in to see whether it fits the parameters of a company that is going to be able to survive in a net zero world and do the right thing. So do I think ESG is happening? Absolutely. Is it happening everywhere? Definitely not. There's an article that your listeners can Google about Vanguard because Vanguard have not drunk the Kool-Aid. Their CEO is actually called Tim Buckley as well. And this is something that I have spoke about on many podcasts at length with people that buy ETFs. Just remember when you buy an ETF, you're buying a whole group of companies within an index. You are scooping up. It's like those big fishing nets that go into the ocean, you are picking up everything and you're not necessarily going to want to pick up the dolphins and the the, 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 the turtles, right, when you're getting your fish, but it's usually in reverse. So let's say you want to invest more with an ESG, then you should do the MSCI X Carbon ETF or have a look to screen out those companies that you do not want as part of your savings to go into. But I think ESG investing is increasingly going to be applied and companies have to be part of it because fund managers, long-dated superannuation funds, pension funds that have to provide the funds to retirees in the future cannot afford to be left with stranded assets or companies that are doing the wrong thing. And I think you will increasingly see particularly in the decarbonisation net zero space, in the environmental space, a much, much larger push 
I think some of the other ones with alcohol, tobacco, gaming, they're a lot more discretionary. People have a very strong view one way or another and therefore it kind of goes more into the ethical stance. But from a governance and environmental stance, I think governance is companies are just not going to be allowed to just get away with whatever they want. But as always, it's up to the investor to make themselves heard, to put their money, use um, profit for purpose, putting in the direction where they think that they can make a difference. And uh, I quoted Galley from Hyperchange when he talked about how upset he was that his hero, Warren Buffett, had bought a huge stake in Chevron. That really, really upset him because he said, you should not be doing that. That's to not to my benefit. Why aren't you buying something like Tesla? Mm. And I think even as an individual share investor, it's good to ask when you're doing your research, it's good to ask what's the company doing about environmental issues? What impact are they making? What does their board look up? They're all sort of good research questions to ask anyway. Oh, absolutely. And I think everybody now is in a position where you don't have to just buy a blue chip. Like you don't have to do that. It's that that whole thing of like you just buy blue chips and you sit and hold them. Well, no, that's like the world has changed. It's moved on from that. And a lot of the blue chips that used to exist do not exist anymore. So this is not a static binary situation. (laughs) Awesome. Well, to, to finish up today's podcast, I was wondering if you can leave my listeners with maybe a few upcoming trends you see sort of becoming really big over the next 12 months that they might like to look into or any last tips you want to share? I am a huge proponent of the decarbonisation play. It had a huge push when Biden won the election and then a big blow off in share prices. But I continue to think that anything that is involved in the transition to zero emissions, the clean energy space, electric vehicles, I'm not a confirmed believer that the existing ice manufacturers, as they're called, the existing car manufacturers, are going to transition as quickly as they're trying to. But I think anybody that wants to make money in the next 10 years, you have to have exposure in that sector. I think you can also play it through the likes of some of the semiconductor plays. The big companies like NVIDIA is another one. Um, AMD, sorry. I'm just trying to think in some of my big sectors at the moment. I've got so many. Cybersecurity. To me, cybersecurity is an absolute no-brainer. You don't have to necessarily go and own uh, specific stocks. I've owned CrowdStrike for absolutely ages, pretty much since the IPO. But you can buy ETFs in that space. And I think as we continue to move increasingly online, that is a growth area. The large tech giants capture a huge lot of the major secular trends such as digitalization, e-commerce, the cloud, edge computing, which is coming for the Internet of Things. So all of those are really, really big sectors that I think, you know, people underestimate how few businesses are still on the cloud and how much more is transitioning there. Ditto, e-commerce, it is still growing. Fintech, I think you're going to see a lot in that space as well. So really, all of those I would be very bullish on. Some of the ones that are probably more of a personal flavour is like if you like the cannabis space or you like the gaming space or those type of sectors which are more specific. But, um, 
yeah, there's a lot to choose from. Yeah, it's uh, it's exciting. There's, I mean, it's it's really fun. I think looking at different companies, especially US companies, and just learning about different businesses and where the world's going. So, even if you don't invest in individual companies, it's still a fun process to work through. Absolutely, but at the bottom, the bottom line is at the end of the day, the US markets have outperformed Australia for the last twenty years and continue to do so. So there is the compounding effect. As I mm. say, you don't have to put all your money in the US, but I think everybody should have exposure there because the largest, the most liquid, there is a big tech race on with China and America wants to win it. And more millionaires are going to be minted as a result of picking up the right shares. Mm. Well, I think that's a fantastic place to leave today's episode, Danny. And if people want to learn more about you investing in the US market and Shareplicity too, where should they go? Well, the website, www.shareplicity.com.au. There's a lot there. You can download the first chapter of the second book for free. You can also, I have blog posts. I now have um, developing Shareplicity talks some YouTubes discussing not so much with your with the fund managers and all of that. It's more a case of trying to talk to people that have extensive knowledge um, about certain sectors, about how to invest, to Mm. give people a better idea of of these big secular themes and what's going on. Uh, So the website is a great place to start. Otherwise, I'm across social media on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook and Instagram. A modern woman. You're everywhere. Trying to be, trying to be. Wonderful. Well, I'll include links to all of those places in the show notes. And thank you so much for coming on again, Danny, and sharing your knowledge with us. Thank you so much, Kate, for having me. It's been lovely to chat. Thank you for listening to this episode of the How To Money podcast. If you enjoyed this, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and send any questions our way via www.howtomoney.online. You can also catch us on Twitter and Instagram at howtomoneyaus and we'd love to hear from you. You've been listening to the How To Money Podcast.